But New York was one of the centers of American socialism, and it had a brief electoral heyday between, let's say, 1914 and um, about 1920-22, where it elected a lot of state New York State Assembly members, uh, the states, uh, mostly in the assembly, maybe one or two senators, maybe, uh, and also to the New York City Board of Aldermen, uh, one municipal judge in New York City, hmm. and one member of Congress from the Lower East Side. Um, Under the Socialist, no. Socialist Party. Right. Uh, all of the districts from which they elected people were Jewish immigrant districts. Socials of America through its Religion and Socialism Working Group. I'm Sarah Neal, and together with my producer, Devin Brisky, we'll conduct deep dive interviews with religious activists and thinkers on radical politics and faith. So this is the second of two-part series on the Jewish labor boom, so the secular Jewish organization that um, came of age in the late 1800s, and still, legacy still remains today, but it's largely, in many ways, died out. The last month, we did an interview with someone who was born in the Warsaw Ghetto, Arena Klepfitz, and whose father participated in a Warsaw Ghetto uprising, which is the largest Jewish resistance to the Nazis, and which is largely organized by the Bund, and who um, Arena Klepfitz uh, sort of grew up in the Bundesmilieu, milieu, fled to America when she was young with her mother, and then went on to become a, a brilliant, famous poet, and Yiddishist, and activist, and the interviews with her is really great. We talk about her process of coming out in New York City, about galvanize her activism, this this interview is more academic, a bit more historical, to give you some more context of the things that Arena uh, references casually in our interview. Um, Professor Daniel Sawyer is at Fordham University, a scholar of American Jewish history. And I, just as a heads up, we didn't really have time to edit this interview, just to get the audio up and running right away. So if you hear background noises, we tape this in Professor Daniel's home. And so I think his dog, you can hear him a little bit in the background. Um, I met both Arena and uh, Professor Daniel um, through Rabbi Sue Oren, who teaches an intro to Judaism class here in Brooklyn. And she, during one day during class, she passed out a small booklet that has a chronology of the Jewish labor boom from 1897-2017. And then Rabbi Oren con- kindly connected me to the editors of that booklet, and this is how we have the interview for us today. I think you'll really enjoy it, particularly if you're more of a historical nerd. With Start in Europe, we kind of move... Um, from the Bund in Europe to the Bund in America. And we end actually by talking about New York politics and the ways in which Jewish socialist immigrant communities are really kind of the backbone of various socialist movements here in New York City, but also um, across America. Okay, thank you so much. Do you want to maybe state your name for the listeners and talk, introduce yourself a little bit more? Uh, my name is Daniel Sawyer. I teach um, American history and Jewish history at Fordham University, and I'm I live in Brooklyn. Live in Brooklyn, okay. And you, you, I came across your work through a I guess I don't even describe this as a calendar or a booklet. I'm not sure what the best way. It's kind of a, it has music in it. It has photos yeah. in it. It's a, it's a very lovely collection. Um, I'm holding it in my hands right now. We're in your home, and it's uh, it's called the Stars Bear Witness, uh, Jewish Labor Boon, eighteen ninety seven twenty seventeen, and when I came across this, um, 
the rabbi who, Rabbi Suorn, who gave it to, uh, I was taking class with her and she gave it, circulated it around class and I said, oh, I'd love to talk to the person, uh, one of the people behind it. So could you talk to me a little bit about how this project came about to begin with, perhaps? Okay, so, uh, yeah, I also have a trouble describing what this is. <laughs> sure. It's kind of a booklet or something. It's kind of like an exhibit catalog, except mm. for that there was no exhibit uh, that went along with it. So mm. it's a booklet that was published um, the year before last, uh, a little over a year ago, in honor of the 120th anniversary of the founding of the Jewish Labor Bund, um, which was a Jewish socialist party in Eastern Europe originating in the Tsarist Russian Empire, and then very active, especially in the interwar years in Poland and some of the other successor states to the Russian Empire. Of course, it was suppressed uh, by the Soviet Union, so it didn't uh, have a, any continuity there. Um, so there, it was the 120th anniversary of the Bund, and some people believed that there should be some event marking it, and so there was um, kind of a mostly academic event, um, talking about the history of the Bund and the legacy of the Bund open to the public. Um, it was co-sponsored by um, the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research and held at the Center for Jewish History. Um, so one of the uh, things that went along with it was uh, the idea to publish this historical booklet. And since I'm a historian, <laughs> And interested in these things and I thought it was something I could help do that uh, so I got involved in it and so I, uh, together I worked on it together with uh, Irina Klepfish um, who's a very well-known poet and, and essayist and writer and teaches Yiddish uh, literature and Jewish literature as well um, so I think you asked how I got involved in it yeah so I got involved in it because in my so most of the people most of the people who were involved in getting this event going and the booklet going uh, were people who grew up in the milieu of the Bund. That is, for the most part, their parents were members of the Bund from Poland or perhaps other places, mostly Poland, uh, who survived the war, and most of these. Most of the people were born after the war. Um, Irene is actually an exception. She was born during the war in Poland. Uh, and they grew up in a Bundist uh, milieu, as I said, and many of them went to the Bundist uh, summer camps uh, in, in the United States, Camp Hemshech. Um, I was not part of that at all. Hmm. But in my young, my youth, when I was a teenager and my uh, young adult, I kind of fell into that crowd. And I was the secretary of a, started as the Jewish Socialist Youth Bund, and we changed this name at some point to the Medem Jewish Socialist Group, because not, not everyone was so young. Uh, but they were mostly American-born, mostly, mostly English-speaking. What time period are we talking um, about? We're talking about uh, the late 70s and early 1980s. Okay. So in the early 1980s, I was the secretary of the Medem Jewish Socialist Group, and I was actually a part-time staff member of what was left of the Bund in New York. So, um, New York City, or well, it was the world headquarters okay. of the of the um, International Jewish Labor Bund. Okay, um, based in New York, uh, our group was really very local and it was very small. 
um, but it was active for a couple for a few years there. Um, and um, um, so I was, you know, so I became acquainted with a lot of the people, and I know these people for you know forty years. Hmm. They know each other for sometimes much longer than that. I know them for uh, like forty years. What drew you to that group? So I was um, uh, a socialist when I was a teenager, uh, and I kind of... Um, Can I ask how you adopted, or maybe it was from your parents, or you just come, well, came into it yourself? I come from a left-wing family. My, my grandparents on my father's side were communists. Um, by the time I was around, they were ex-communists, but they were still, as they say, with quotes around the word progressive. Mm -hmm. um, they never really broke with communism. They just kind of faded out of it. Um, so they were still kind of, and my grandfather was a kind of prominent artist. Um, so, you know, he signed all the statements and all this kinds of stuff, um, mostly from the kind of progressive circles around, you know, the Communist Party. In America. Uh, in New York. In New York. Okay. And um, uh, my parents were kind of left liberals, so I grew up, you know, you know, being brought to anti-war demonstrations and things like that. Mm. And I started thinking about more, you know, systematically about this. I actually, I think what really happened was that I read Michael Harrington's book, mm. um, The Other America. I must have been about 14 or something like this. Yeah. And so I said, well, this is interesting, and, you know, I got to learn, I mean, it's terrible that there's all this poverty. I don't know if I was surprised, but um, I kind of looked for other books by Michael Harrington, and I found his various books about socialism and things like this, and I was a Harringtonite, so I joined the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. Mm. And um, around the same time, I was started thinking about what it meant to be Jewish. I, I grew up um, with, both my parents are Jewish by birth, but not involved in any kind of communal or religious or cultural aspects of it at all. Uh, but I grew up in a very not Jewish neighborhood in Queens, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism. And so I started to think, well, you know, what, what does this actually mean? And I started to explore this, I think the 1973 um, war in um, in the Middle East had something to do with right. this too. I was I got very um, concerned that uh, it didn't go very well for Israel at the beginning, and it seemed very scary. So I started thinking about these things. But being a socialist, I started to look into kind of Jewish socialist um, organizations and traditions, um, and um, the one that I kind of identified with the most was the Bund, which I think I found through a book called The Jewish Catalog, which was kind of a, I don't know exactly when it was published, but late 60s, early 70s, yeah. kind of countercultural, just what it sounds like, a catalog of Jewishness, you know. Did you know at the time that there was a rich tradition of Jewish socialism, like that was in your milieu as well, um, or you had to kind of look, search for it in some way? I searched for it. I mean, I knew that there were a lot of Jews who were socialists. I had examples of that mm -hmm. from my grandparents and, my, you know, and a lot of their friends, but um, I didn't have any clue about this real history, no. So the Jewish catalog had a little bit of that, and it actually had addresses and things like this, you know. Um... And I started getting into it, and I went to, I actually went to the office of the, but I used to do this, 
there was no, you know, there was no web. Right. You know that, right? Yeah, right, right. That. So you had to actually like go places and things like this. So, <laughs> open files. Open files. So um, I kind of had this, um, you know, I learned about Yiddish. My grandfather was an immigrant. I mean, he spoke Yiddish, but he, he preferred Russian. Um, but I, I don't know. It seemed, I found social Zionist things too. Hmm. But um, this there was something more, I don't know why, but it seemed more intimidating somehow. There were people with like Hebrew names. Um, I don't know why they were more intimidating than the Yiddish names. Can you clarify for maybe who are less familiar social Zionism as opposed to the Boone socialism and sort of, yeah, differences so, there? So this gets into a long history, but um, um, a lot of these things were responding to a combination of anti-Semitism in Europe, especially East, especially but not exclusively Eastern Europe, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, uh, a sense that there was something anomalous about the Jewish condition, uh, but also um, a revolt against a Jewish tradition and the traditional community. Um, and out of this came a lot of debate and discussion about um, the nature of the Jewish people and the solutions to both of these problems, the pressure from the outside and the kind of sense that the community itself was also not structured justly, uh, fairly, especially to, well, I mean, not surprisingly to people with less power, mm -hmm. which were the poor um, and the working class. And so uh, out of this arise, out of these, this, you know, that's putting it very, very, simplistically, but out of the, uh, arising out of both of these um, pressures uh, come a variety of solutions. Um, so one was Zionism. Zionism is a form of Jewish nationalism, um, which sees the Jewish condition uh, as anomalous in that the Jews are a nation, but unlike uh, every other nation, don't have a territory. And out of the lack of a territory come two things. Uh, one is a lack of power, uh, and that makes the Jews victims to everyone who, you know, does have power. Uh, and especially in places where Jews live everywhere as a minority. Uh, and also it distorts Jewish culture um, that um, um, the cultures, the Jewish cultures that arise in the diaspora are manifestations of uh, a kind of um, degenerated and deformed uh, ex national existence. Uh, things like Yiddish are, uh, are um, strange, di you know, hybrid dialects that, of languages that Jews um, lived surrounded by. Mm but which they kind of speak badly and um, create kind of, uh, um, as they say, bastardized forms of, that the real Jewish national um, culture is rooted in Hebrew right. and rooted in the land of Israel, which is the Jews' historic homeland. Um, so out of this, but um, out of this come uh, a huge variety of Zionisms. It's really not right to call Zion, to say the Zionism, but there were many, many different Zionisms. And they range from 
the kind of political Zionism of, let's say, Theodore Herzl, who's often called the founder of the movement. It's mm-hmm. not 100% accurate, but he did kind of bring it together in a kind of organized sense. Um, and he just saw this as a an answer to anti-Semitism. Jews need political power. Um, and a Jewish state can guard against um, anti-Semitism. But also, if the Jews become a nation in their territory with a state, they'll be a normal nation and there won't be any anti-Semitism. Because there's, you know, they'll just be like any other nation. Mm-hmm. Um, there were also cultural Zionists, like uh, someone whose real name was Asher Ginsburg, but who called himself Achad Ha'am, means one of the people, um, who was much more focused on the cultural aspect. Um, the idea that the Jews need to revitalize for the modern period their real healthy um, traditional national culture needs to be based in Hebrew and it needs to be based in in the Jews country which is Palestine the land of Israel Um, he didn't particularly care if there was a state could be part of the Ottoman Empire that was fine as long as there was a Jewish population center uh, and um, it was speaking Hebrew And um, it was modern, and from there, kind of this Jewish national culture would radiate out to the diaspora and kind of cure the kind of um, cultural ills of of diaspora Judaism. So there was also socialist Zionism, and socialist Zionism, there were a variety of kinds of socialist Zionists too, Uh, but they believed that the plight of um, the Jewish poor was also part of this anomalous diaspora existence. Um, many Jews were poor, but they were not necessarily modern proletarians. Uh, they were small craftspeople. They were you know, peddlers and, and think cartmen and things like this. Uh, and um, some socialist scientists believed that building a healthy um, Jewish... Um, laboring class on a socialist basis uh, was also part of curing the um, anomalous Jewish um, diasporic uh, uh, condition. Uh, other socialist Zionists uh, were more Marxist, and they believed that Jews would not be able to um, that Jews would not be able to participate fully in the international socialist revolution unless they had a territorial, territorially concentrated Jewish proletariat. Uh, so um, social Zionists um, worked to both integrate Jews into the international socialist movement but also worked to create, again, a Jewish um, population center in the land of Israel, uh, in Palestine. Um, And there were a variety of approaches, whether it was going to be through a state and then through a socialist revolution. Mm. For the most part, it took the shape of um, settlement, which was socialist from the start, collectivist from the start. And this is the origin of the kibbutzim in in Israel. so there was social Zionism. Uh, there were, there was an, uh, another, there were all kinds of other approaches, but another important socialist approach 
um, was embodied in the Bund. Uh, the Bund was a particular organization, uh, unlike Zionism, which was a whole lot of different organizations, uh, but it also um, developed a very specific approach to Jewish national uh, life and to Jewish socialism. Uh, so the Bund was founded in 1897, mainly in order to carry out socialist propaganda and Russian, revolutionary propaganda in the Russian Empire uh, in the Yiddish language among the Jewish working class. Um, but it evolved over the next 10 years or so uh, into an organization which saw itself as a distinctive um, voice of the Jewish proletariat representing the Jewish proletariat in the Jewish in the socialist movement as well as the socialist movement in the Jewish community and among the Jewish workers okay. um, it so part of the education from what I recall from reading this was because the it began with like the sort of more Russian intellectuals among the Jewish kind of diaspora, and then they saw the need to bring the ideology to the masses, and there's a need to translate it to Yiddish, because most people read, or spoke Yiddish right. at least. Yeah. So the so most Jews in the Russian Empire yeah. lived in the Pale of Settlement, which was the western end of the, of the, of the empire. Mm -hmm. um, this was not a ghetto, actually, this was several countries, this is Ukraine, Belarus, uh, most of Poland, um, Lithuania and part of Latvia, but uh, but not Russia proper. Uh, there were always exceptions. My grandfather grew up in Russia proper, but that's a whole other story. Hmm. And there were other non-Ashkenazi communities outside the Pale of Settlement, small ones, but most of Jews in the Russian Empire were in the Pale of Settlement, and most were Yiddish-speaking. Uh, Yiddish is a Germanic language uh, that originated in areas of what is now Germany, but which migrated eastward with, with the Jewish speakers and became detached from German Germanic-speaking areas. Uh, but Jews continued to speak this up until um, the Holocaust in Eastern Europe. So um, most Jews were uh, Yiddish-speaking, but there was a, um, a relatively small but very active and very articulated, articulate, uh, um, class of Jews who were either Russian-speaking or who were in the process of Russifying, uh, some of whom had advanced education, and some of whom uh, became involved in Russian revolutionary movements in the late 19th century. Uh, at some point, for a variety of reasons, including anti-Semitism within the revolutionary movement, uh, in some cases, just a sense that they were having trouble because of cultural differences reaching the Russian peasantry, um, they turned to organizing among the Jewish working class in the Pale of Settlement, especially in the huh. northern region areas around Lithuania and northern Poland, Belarus. And um, they discovered that if they were going to reach the Jewish workers, they needed to speak the Jewish workers' language, which was Yiddish. Uh, which some of them didn't speak, which some of them did speak from home, but had never thought of like writing in or writing, speaking formally in. Uh, and so they started to pioneer this kind of modern 
uh, Yiddish language uh, to speak about political issues. And it was distinctly a secular kind of program. Absolutely a secular program. And can you explain like why that was the case? The Jews in Eastern Europe had a culture which was um, that's kind of straddled religious and national um, aspects. They of course had traditional form of Jewish religion, uh, which most people adhere to, um, or I should say traditional forms of Jewish religion, which most people adhere to, but they also had uh, national aspects. For one thing, they spoke their own language, Yiddish, um, whereas the people that surrounded them spoke Polish, Belarusian, Ukrainian, Lithuanian, and so on. The officials spoke Russian. Uh, some of uh, some of the um, educated class in, in in Poland spoke Polish. Some people spoke German. It was a multinational empire, uh, and the Jews seemed to be uh, a nation among those um, nations within the Russian Empire. But until the late nineteenth until the nineteenth century. Um, there wasn't a separation between the religious aspects and the national aspects. Um, in the late 19th century, uh, and certainly Zionism was part of this, so was the Bund, there started to be also a kind of separation out of these kinds of, of these two identities. In Western Europe, you see the rise of things like Reform Judaism, which say, no, well, we're Germans, we're French, we're English, but we have this but we're a religious community, we're, we're Jews as a religious community. In Eastern Europe, because of some of the features that I mentioned, uh, it tended to be the opposite. Uh, there were people who said, well, we're not religious, but we're still Jews, we're still Jews by nationality. Um, we speak Yiddish. Uh, that was really the main marker, you know. Of course, from traditional Jewish life, they also had uh, different um, calendar, different foods, right. things like this. Um, uh, so you're saying there was a bit more of a demarcation within Eastern Europe, but I presume also the um, the initial kind of Russified intellectuals were mm -hmm. they presumably a more secular in their orientation. They were more well? secular in their orientation. Okay. Some of them may have had some kind of modernized form of religion, mm -hmm. but many of them were were secular. Got it, and. Did, you mentioned your grandpa grew up in Russia. Was part of this exploration also a way to kind of understand the conditions in which he was born or something like that? I think it would, for me personally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think it was a little bit, you know, certainly it was a personal exploration. So he, he grew up outside the Pale of Settlement mm -hmm. uh, in a city east of Moscow until uh, he was 12 years old and they came here. Uh, after their residency permit was revoked. Uh, my great-grandfather was, um, uh, he was an, a, another kind of Zionist, he was a religious Zionist, so he was someone who was trying to combine uh, kind of a modernized form of traditional Judaism with uh, Zionism, and he was a Hebrew writer. Um, so, uh, and I think the story was he wanted to go to Palestine. Their, their residency permit was revoked for, they were outside the Pale of Settlement. Uh, so they had to go somewhere and... Res go, residency within Russia. Within Russia, Got proper. It. And so they could have gone back to the t town where he was from in Latvia, 
which was within the Palo settlement, but there were no jobs and there was no way to make a living. So he wanted to go to Palestine. Uh, but the story that I heard is that they told him, you have six children, you do not go to Palestine, you go to America, because yeah. there's no way to make a living. So he came to America. Yeah. Uh, but my grandfather went, started gymnasium in Russia, so he spoke yeah. Russian. Um, it's a little tricky. What he, he must have spoken Yiddish at home. I, I think at, there, were, there was also a class of people like my grandfather who were re-Yiddishized when they migrated to America, interestingly enough, oh, okay. who, had, who were kind of transitioning to Russian, Russian culture. But when they were part of like this mass Jewish immigration and immigrant community in New York, kind of got reintegrated into Yiddish culture. Yeah. So I know that my grandfather spoke good Yiddish, um, but I know also that, well, I never spoke Yiddish with him because he died when I started to learn Yiddish. But I spoke with mm. his twin brother, mm. who lived a lot longer, and he spoke good Yiddish with kind of a Russian accent, like a little bit, sound, sounding a little bit like a Russian. So, um, but I've seen Yiddish that he wrote, and it was very good, you know. Mm. And how did they kind of enact or play out socialist ideals in uh, in America, I suppose. When you say they, you they, I, I suppose I'm thinking specifically of your grandpa, but I, I guess also his community, I presume, who also maybe shared similar ideals. Well, there's a variety. Yeah. We, we start with the Bund War, though. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> we need to start in the old country. Okay, let's, let's rewind then. Let's okay. go, start there. So, so the Bund was founded in 1897. Yes. You're right that it was originally founded by a combination, actually, of some of these somewhat Russified intellectuals with um, some Yiddish-speaking workers who they had already been working with in the 1890s. Um, and it was founded, as I said, mainly to bring socialist propaganda to Yiddish-speaking workers. But within 10 years, it had evolved um, a national program uh, which looked at y Yiddish-speaking Jews as a nation. They never really dealt with the issue of non-Yiddish-speaking Jews as Sephardic Jews or just, I, I, don't, I don't think they, maybe somewhere they said something about them, but it just wasn't on their mind. Yeah. They were speaking of the Yiddish-speaking uh, masses of Eastern Europe. Jews were a nation. Uh, it did not matter that they did not have a territory. This was not an essential um, characteristic for a nation. Uh, and as a nation, they should have national rights within a multinational empire. Um, exactly what that meant was also a little bit hazy sometimes, what, how that would work itself out after the revolution. But they talked about national cultural national cultural autonomy that that each nation whether it had a territory or not would have control over those aspects of let's say those state agencies and those state institutions which impacted on their national culture so certainly schools for sure that there would be just like there would be russian schools there would be german schools for german speaking children in the russian socialist whatever came after the russian empire there would be Ukrainian uh, language schools, there would be Yiddish language schools. Um, also, whatever kinds of uh, cultural you know, activities there would be, whether there was, if there were state theaters, there would be a Yiddish theater. 
there would be Yiddish public 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 publishing. Um, whatever there would be that perhaps there would be even Yiddish language courts in areas where uh, there were a lot of Yiddish speaking people, right? And that the Jews somehow would run this, just as the other nationalities would run their versions of these things. Um, this would happen after the revolution in a socialist Russia. Okay? So they saw themselves as an integral part of the revolutionary movement in Russia, but also they realized, and they realized very quickly, that they would have to fight for Jewish national rights within the socialist movement. Um, and if I recall correctly, you're saying that that was sort of a pivot. Like initially, they were just focused on the revolution. They realized actually we need to like recognize the fact that they you know, Jew. Right. So can you talk a bit about that? Why they felt both were very linked. If that makes sense, the fight for Jewish nationalism or fight against anti-Semitism and socialist revolution. I think they felt that first of all there was um, anti-Semitism within the socialist movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was certainly a need to uh, defend Jews specifically from anti-Semitism, like pogroms and things like this, uh, and government policies. Um, so they, the Jews needed it, their own autonomous um, voice uh, and wing of the movement. So they felt that if there was a socialist revolution but anti-Semitism was not addressed, they wouldn't really be like liberation. I think they thought people. that there wouldn't be like just like some socialists and some Jewish socialists thought, you know, there's a material basis for anti-Semitism and capitalism mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever the heck that was in Russia, which was right. kind of almost, you know, <laughs> pre-modern. And that once this was, once there was socialism, that it would disappear. But I don't think people in the Bund thought that. Oh, I mean, you don't think people in the Bund thought that? No. Okay. <clears throat> they just saw, okay, like, there's a need for justice and liberation, and both had to occur. Both had to occur. And I think they also simply felt, you know, and especially as the Bund got started, and more and more people, uh, more and more members of the Bund were um, from the Yiddish-speaking working class, um, or these, these Russified intellectuals started, um, you know, were more integrated also with the Yiddish speaking working class, that they felt national, they felt like they were a different nation. Yep. The Bund itself always said it was national but not nationalist. Hmm. Um, but most historians, from what I've seen, usually classify them as within the kind of national, uh, nationalist, um, you know, uh, spectrum of right. in Jewish political life. Okay. And it, walk me through some of the other, like, major chapters. So they start out as a more Yiddish kind of education, revolutionary propaganda, and then they become kind of an organizing center for the Jewish proletariat, or however, what terms, working class, I guess. And then what happens? Well, one important thing was the split in the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party in okay. 1903. The Bund was um, closer to the Mensheviks, um, but uh, actually at that convention, 1903 convention, there was a three-way split because the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks split, mm -hmm. uh, but the Bund also split, and they, they split over this issue of national autonomy. Mm. Um, so, they be, so while in, eight, in, in 1890s, well, they... So here's a little, the backstory is that the, the Bund was founded in 1997, 
The Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party was founded in 1898. So actually the Bund predated the party, but the Bund saw itself as, as part of the party uh, until this split. Hmm. So the Bund once again became, in reality, a def- a, an independent organization. And this is also probably a, you know, an important milestone yep. because that's how it functioned. You know, I guess they all had this idea that somehow the party would get back together or something like this, but um, that wasn't that didn't happen. And um, and the Bund was a separate organization. And why did working they as much as possible with you know with um, the revolutionary movement? Sure, but very jealous of its autonomy. Huh. So can you explain a little bit about why this split? happened and uh, um, uh, without maybe. maybe doing a whole <laughs> whole thing but unless it's like impossible in which case yeah. that's fine i'm a little rusty i'm not really a russian historian so there are that's, people that's that. okay. I, used to, I used to know this backwards and forwards you know why um, they decided with the mensheviks as opposed to all that kind of stuff the bolsheviks so uh well there was a quip forget which Russian revolutionary said it, but the, kind of comparing the three factions, uh, the Bolsheviks were an army, right? Lenin had this idea of a vanguard, uh, that the party was the vanguard of the proletariat, mm-hmm. and, um, and that the party needed to ma- be made up of professional revolutionaries. Um, it was not necessarily a mass party, uh, but it was a professional party that would lead uh, the proletariat to, to the revolution. Uh, the Mensheviks were debating society. Uh, I, I would say Lenin also had this idea that you could force... Because Russia was very underdeveloped, and according to the Marxist theory, this is not where socialist revolution should be happening. It should be happening in countries of, of advanced capitalism, where capitalism had already created the material conditions for the revolution. And Lenin had uh, this idea that you could... That you could through the force of will and through the force of this of the working of this professional uh, vanguard party, um, kind of override that and force through social uh, mm-hmm. socialist revolution. Um, the Mensheviks were a debating society. They had this idea that no, there had to be um, Russia had to go through some kind of uh, development that was similar to Western Europe before there could be real socialism. And that socialism should be based on uh, a mass party. And as they developed over time, uh, they developed into what we would call democratic socialists, that they believed that socialism was um, inseparable from a democratic um, Mm. political system. And I think the Bund simply agreed with them more, Mm. but they often disagreed on the national question. And the Bund split, I believe, this is being recorded, but don't quote me on this, uh, that the Bund split at the conference before then the big split in the party. If the Bund had not split, maybe the Mensheviks would have had the majority and they would have been the Bolsheviks. Oh, Bolsheviks wow. mean majority and Mensheviks means minority. So. And, so, and the nationalist question is over whether Jews constituted a nation. Constituted a nation okay. and, and that therefore their representatives should have autonomy within the party. I see. Okay. Got it. So that's a big milestone. What's, a, what's another milestone after that? Uh, actually, the third part of the quip was that the yes. Bund was a family. Huh, okay. Because they developed this very, very, very um, uh, close kind of sense of, like, they were, um, 
they were part of a persecuted minority. They were also part of a persecuted political group. Uh, they were kind of a minority within the persecuted <laughs> political group of the revolutionary movement. Uh, and there was also kind of a youth movement. It was not officially at this point, but it was mostly young people. Mm. And they were revolting against their parents' culture as well. They were developing a, um, uh, a secular, a modern, secular Jewish culture based in the Yiddish language. Mm. And so they were, they developed a very close kind of feeling for each other, you know. Um, they often faced a lot of danger together from the regime. Uh, they were involved, as I think I mentioned, in self-defense against pogroms, in some cases, depending on where they were. Uh, so they, they really had a very close-knit kind of feeling. One thing I was struck by in some of the interviews in this booklet was the fact that many parents were not so happy that their kids no, joined their the boon. No, their parents were not happy. Can you tell a little bit why? Is it, is it because part of what the boon represented was like those anti-traditional... Yeah. So part of it was that it was anti-traditional. Okay. And part of it was it was dangerous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you get true. a lot of trouble. You get sent to Siberia. You get sent to prison, you know. And, and and you could probably get your family in trouble too, you know. So um, it was uh, so it was it was a revolt against traditional Judaism and the and the community, and it was also a dangerous thing. So a lot of parents were not happy about this. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. Um, okay, so in that milieu, what would you say would be the next historical milestone? So the next historical milestone is. Um, well, takes a number of years, but World War One, the Russian Revolution, uh, and the disintegration of the Russian Empire. Um, the Bund, um, at first, of course, was uh, against the against the war effort in Russia, but when the first revolution happened in nineteen seventeen, in February Revolution, which took place in the rest of March, because they were still on the old calendar, which was February, the rest of the world it was March. Mm. Um, the Bund kind of divided as the Mensheviks did too, which was that some of them said, well, this is no longer the Tsarist regime. This is now the provisional government uh, working towards democracy. Uh, and we have to defend the country against invasion. The Germans were you know, occupying parts of the country. So there were defensists, you know, but there were also some who were still uh, opposing the war effort. Um, and then um, after the second revolution, um, and especially I would say even two years later, when... Um, there was the Russian Civil War um, and then the um, war between the Soviet Union and Poland in 2021. There was a huge wave of pogroms, um, which are, you know, often kind of now kind of not thought of because, you know, what came later was so much worse. But mm -hmm. tens of thousands, perhaps more than 100,000 Jews were killed in pogroms, you know, over 1919, 1920. And it turned out the Red Army of the Soviet state wasn't officially at the Soviet Union, but the new Soviet state was um, instrumental in many cases in defending the Jews against pogroms. Hmm. That plus the sense that took that 
that many socialists around the world had that, you know, no matter what we thought in all our debating and all this kinds of stuff. So after the revolution, especially in the next couple of years, um, and especially I would say 1919, 1920, during the Russian Civil War and the beginning of the Soviet War with Poland, um, there was a huge wave of pogroms. And, um, you know, again, forgotten about in popular Jewish historical memory because of what happened later in the Holocaust. But this was a really terrible episode in which tens of thousands, perhaps over 100,000 Jews, as many as 150,000 Jews were killed in pogroms. And it turned out that the Red Army... Soviet army was often instrumental in defending Jews against the pogroms, uh, which were mainly carried out by counter-revolutionary forces. Hmm. Um, so that plus um, the sense that many socialists around the world had that no matter what our debates and our visions of the future and Marxist theory or whatever, the Bolsheviks are actually making socialism and we have to recognize that and we have to therefore um, even, you know, emulate them and even follow their lead because they seem to know what they're doing. Um, the Bund actually split and some went over to the communists. Hmm. Um, for a while they tried to have what they called the Kommunistische Bund, the Kombund, but that was liquidated. Some of them uh, became active were the Jewish sections of the of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, until they were liquidated. The organization was liquidated, and many of them were liquidated as well. Mm. Um, but others um, stood by the Bund, which, as I said before, by this time had this very feeling of kind of a tight camaraderie and even like a family feeling. Um, this the Russian Empire fell apart, so. Um, the Bund itself was suppressed in the Soviet Union, along with all other socialists. Uh, but in independent Poland and Lithuania and Latvia, it continued to exist. And it became, because it was now legal, it became actually a mass party. Um, and so especially in Poland, which was the biggest you know, country and the biggest Bund, um, it was uh, a legal political party although it was constantly harassed by the police. Um, and it had all kinds of ancillary organizations, it had a youth movement, had a women's organization, had uh, unions that it controlled. It had uh, cultural organizations, it had sports organization, it had all these kinds of things that European right. political parties have. And it was legal because of the fall of the Russian Empire, which created right. the legal space, okay. Yeah. And, in, in, and in Poland, uh, went through different phases. Um, it was kind of a different times kind of limited democracy or limited dictatorship, you know, mm. but many, there were political parties that operated legally, except for the communists who were illegal. Okay. Mm. Got it. And then I suppose World War II starts. So then, well, a huge turning point is um, is the beginning of World War Two. So the um, that starts. So Germany invaded Poland on September first, nineteen thirty nine, and the Bund 
well, I mean, it, uh, um, you know, the Bundists, let's say, suffered all the fates that all the Polish Jews did. Some of them fled into the Soviet Union where things were bad, but not as bad as under German occupation. Um, some of them fell victim in, in the camps and or died in the ghettos and so on. But um, in the ghettos, uh, the Bund uh, regrouped, and especially the youth um, from the youth Bund. And um, they operated in the ghettos underground and they formed an important part together with the Zionists uh, and the communists of the resistance against the Nazis. Uh, and, um, you know, one of the, the most famous episode is the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, right. which began on April 19th, 1943, in which the Bund played an important role. Hmm. Okay. But, um, you know, the, the Holocaust just destroyed the, the social basis for the Bund and destroyed the Jewish working class in Eastern, the Yiddish-speaking Jewish working class in Eastern Europe just didn't exist anymore yeah. after the war. There was an effort after the war to restart the Bund in Poland. Um, there was actually, um, there was a, a Bund by that time in exile based in New York. They sent an emissary, you know, to see if they could get it started, but they realized they, you know, basically discovered that people wanted out. They didn't want to stay in Poland mm. at that time. And eventually the Bund was suppressed again by the con when the communists came in in Poland, they were suppressed. Whatever was left of the Bund in Poland was suppressed. Um, so Bundists ended up all over the world. Yeah. Um, wherever Jewish refugees ended up, the United States, Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, um, Chile, um, other countries in Latin America, I'm probably forgetting. Um, Israel, South Africa, um, Britain, France, um, and everywhere they went, they founded, um, oh, Australia, very important, Australia. Um, they founded Bundist organizations, um, which remained active and which um, grouped together in um, something which was now called the International Jewish Labor Bund. Which had, a head, had its headquarters in New York, uh, and so they were active in local politics. They were active in Yiddish cultural activities, uh, but for the mo but although they 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 raised uh, their children um, in Bundist spirit, and there were summer camps in various places and or activities and things for youth, um, the Bundist organizations didn't really survive the twentieth century for the most part. Uh, they simply kind of ran down with the with the refugee generation, with the generation that had grown up in Eastern Europe. Hmm. Uh, the exception is Australia, hmm. and I don't really know why, but there's still an active Bund and there's still active youth groups there. Hmm. What were these summer camps like? So um, the one in upstate New York was called Camp Hemshech, which means continuity or continuation in Yiddish. It was founded in the late 50s when I guess, um, you know, the, these Bundists who had come mainly after the war or some of them were able to get out right before the war, um, were having children who needed a camp. And um, there were some camps already in New York which had a similar political organ 
orientations, but which were not strongly Yiddish enough for them and perhaps not strongly by that time socialist enough for them. Hmm. So they founded their own camp. And in this camp, Hemshech, where I never went, so I visited once, but I never was a camper there, so you can talk to people who were. They, they tried to replicate and pass on this Yiddish, secular, socialist subculture that, had, that they had created in, mainly in interwar Poland. So they used a lot of Yiddish. A lot of the kids came from Yiddish-speaking homes, and some of them didn't, so it was, I think, a struggle sometimes to maintain it as a spoken mm-hmm. language, but certainly for, um, you know, camp ritual purposes and things like this and games and songs and performances. Okay. They used a lot of Yiddish. And they tried to inculcate uh, socialist values um, in the children. Got it. And just to re- rewind and come back you talked about it sounds like it was kind of a full-on like nation building program you have these cultural centers these youth camps i'm talking more in the old country but Mm -hmm. but you also mentioned that for the most part jews weren't necessarily like the proper like proletarian in the sense that we think of factory workers who get a wage they were Mm -hmm. maybe like petty businessmen or Mm -hmm. tradesmen Mm -hmm. what did organizing economically i suppose look like in in those kinds of occupations so i think by by that time, the Bund was organizing, yeah, not, not a traditional factory proletariat. Right. There was some, you know, so sure. there's some of that. But uh, often a kind of artisanal proletariat. Huh, okay. So, um, you know, maybe not the master tradesman who owned the shop, but um, uh, tradesmen who worked for the master tradesman. Um, and some of these guys, especially men who, I know in, in Warsaw, there were porters. They were, and I, they were basically freelance. I don't think they worked for big companies or anything. Mm-hmm. They had licenses, but they were porters. They literally carried big loads, often on their backs, you know, um, for individuals or for businesses. And the Bund organized them, you know, so that they could... Um, set better prices and things like this. So more collective bargaining. Yeah, things like this. So the, so in Poland, right. you know, unlike... So in Russia, they did organize a lot of times strikes and things like this, mm-hmm. but it was hard because it was all illegal. In Poland, there were unions. And As in the strikes were illegal. The strikes and any kind of organization okay. that they might form. In Poland, they did form trade unions, which were... Separate from the Bund, but you know, allied with the Bund, and sure. a lot of this, the leadership and the staff would be Bundists, um, and um, they would lead strikes. They would um, press for better wages, better conditions, things like this. And did they bring some of that into the state, United States, in terms of that kind of union organizing? Okay. So, so the founding of the Bund was in eighteen ninety seven. This this is corresponds with the mass. Uh, immigration of Eastern Europeans to the Americas in the 1870s into the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, so caught up in that wave were, of course, individual Bundists. And then, especially after the failure of the first Russian Revolution in 1905, uh, there were some who fled for political reasons. 
because um, there was a lot of repression and so some left and like you mentioned some of the the parents were not happy that it was very dangerous and some of them said you got to get out of here you know to their children go to america some of them did and here they founded um related organizations okay. there was something in the united states called the workman's circle right. or in yiddish the arbitering which still exists on a much smaller level this was a labor uh jewish labor fraternal order so you would join, you would get certain benefits. There was a, like life, like what they call a death benefit. If someone died, their family would get a certain payment. Uh, you get medical benefits. You see the doctors, um, the cemeteries, you know, things, uh, strike benefits. You went on a strike. Hmm. Um, all kinds of aid in terms of, you know, in times of need. Um, but the Workman's Circle also had um, cultural the activities in Yiddish, uh, and it was officially simply labor, but unofficially socialist. There were some anarchists, uh, but the dominant faction was socialist. So the Bundes, when they came here, they it wasn't founded by Bundes, but when the Bundes, when they came here, they joined it, and they founded their own branches. Hmm. So you had Bundes branches I of see. the Workman's Circle. Okay. Um, and they supported the socialist movement here in the United States. Um, they, they really pushed the Yiddish culture in the Workman's Circle, so they strengthened the Yiddish cultural aspect of it. Huh. And they also supported the work of the Bund in, the, in, in Europe. Hmm. Um, and so this, this continues really throughout the history of this. Well into after World War II, also there were either some of the new the newcomers after World War II either joined some of the old Bundes branches or they founded their own new Bundes branches and they continued to participate in this, um, again, Yiddish, secular, um, Jewish, uh, cultural yeah. labor sure. movement. Yeah. Why, um, I have a bunch of questions, but maybe I'll ask but the most pressing one is, you know, we're at an interesting time in which socialism is a bit more on the rise now in terms of popular discourse and young people are, don't have the same maybe stigmas attached to socialism as perhaps their parents or grandparents have. And at the same time, we're also in an interesting period in which like anti-Semitism is more vocally kind of discussed and recognized as like a thing that happens and um, or maybe it's on the rise in many ways in many parts of the world. In light of kind of all of that, these things swirling in today's milieu, what do you feel like is valuable to learn about this this part of history? <laughs> that's a that's a tough question for me to answer and a complicated yeah. one sure. for me personally. Um, I think it's tough for me personally because I I did identify with the Bund, uh, but. And I have, I, although I still have a lot of respect for, his, for it as for his tradition, mm -hmm. I think it was very admirable and even heroic. Yeah. Um, I think it lost out in history. Hmm. Right? It, and, no, and I don't think it was through fault of its own, like some Zionists would say. But um, it, was, it was based in, again, the Yiddish-speaking Jewish working class of Eastern Europe. To some extent, it's 
its own, you know, sub diasporas in America and other places. And those things just don't exist anymore hmm. um, in any appreciable size, you know. Sure. And so I'm not sure that its politics are as relevant as they were. I, I guess to some extent, you know, I'm going to contradict myself now. Okay, there is some relevance. When we had the 120th anniversary, it was 2017. Um, less than, it was less than a year. It was less than a year, a little bit less than a year after the elections, 2016. And I recalled that in the Republican primaries of 2016, um, some of the some of Trump's opponents, I think it was Cruz mainly, he tried to appeal to Republican voters in other par- other parts of the country by saying that Trump represented New York values, right? Right, and I think he meant by this some kind of libertine, you know, values. Um, But I think it is true that Trump represents New York values. New York is a center of, you know, acquisitive, acquisitive, uh, kind of, um, not just acquisitive, but um, predatory capitalism. Uh, But the 2016 election was also interesting because Bernie Sanders Mm -hmm. was also a candidate and he represents another set of New York values. Uh, and that's uh, democratic socialism. Um, this was a this was a strong political force in New York City. Uh, it had a brief electoral heyday in the teens, nineteen teens, um, but it continued to influence mainstream New York politics, at least at least through the nineteen sixties, maybe into the nineteen seventies, to the fiscal crisis, mm-hmm. and a lot of it came from the Bund actually. Hmm. Um, or at least some of it. A lot of it came from Jewish immigrant socialism, and some of that came from the Bund. So I think it's relevant that way, that there is another kind of New York answer to the kind of problems that we see in capitalism today, and that and that could be kind of social democratic or democratic socialist um, hmm. uh, response. Um, I think from, as far as the Jewish question, I think it's more problematic you know, I'm a diaspora Jew, and I identify, and I love Yiddish culture, and I speak Yiddish. Um, but there are two, there are two large Jewish communities in the world today. Hmm. One is in the United States, and one is in Israel. Yeah. And the only Jewish community in the world today where the main language of communication is a Jewish language is Israel, right? Where they speak Hebrew, and modern Hebrew is in some ways what Yiddish was. It's kind of like enfolds within it. A whole history of the Jewish people, including elements of Yiddish, right? Because they 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 brought in there are expressions with they either they needed to create a modern language, and there was something they couldn't say, so they some cases they translated it from Yiddish into Hebrew, yeah, right? Or just because of words people knew, they just brought Yiddish words and Yiddish expressions in. And the same was true of Arabic and, um, you know, the Jews from the Middle East brought Arabic expressions in and other, from other places. And so um, I see, um, you know, uh, Israel as a very central part of Jewish national existence yeah. today that can't be avoided. Hmm. Uh, and the most creative center of Jewish culture, because whatever they create in Hebrew is, in a sense, Jewish culture. It doesn't matter what it is. The same as what, you know, the Bundes thought in Yiddish culture, because they would write a secular novel, sec, you know, anything, 
in Yiddish, that's Yiddish, that's Jewish culture. Yeah. Right? Yeah, right. That makes sense. Could you rewind a little bit and talk about the role in which maybe either the Boone formally or informally played in the movement around democratic political party, around democratic socialism okay. in America? So, um, so as a lot of listeners probably know, the Socialist Party at one time was fairly sizable in the United mm-hmm. States. It was gro- It was still small, but it was growing. Um, it was a little bit behind the European parties, but not all that much, really. And it was electing people on a local level. Uh, in some places, you know, m- mostly but not exclusively, places with large immigrant populations, like Milwaukee, where there were a lot of Germans. Mm. Um, but New York was one of the centers of American socialism, and it had a brief electoral heyday between, let's say, 1914 and um, about 1920, 22, uh, where it elected a lot of state, New York State Assembly members, uh, the states, uh, mostly in the Assembly, maybe one or two senators, maybe, uh, and also to the New York City Board of Aldermen. Uh, one municipal judge in New York City hmm. and one member of Congress from the Lower East Side. Um, Under the Socialist, no, Socialist Party. Right. Uh, all of the districts from which they elected people were Jewish immigrant districts. Hmm. Not all of the elected officials right. were Jews, but um, they were all from Jewish, predominantly Jewish districts. And um, so Meyer London was a member of Congress. Uh, from the Lower East Side, um, and there were others from Lower East Side, from Brownsville, Brooklyn, from the, what's now called the South Bronx, and from Upper Manhattan, all Jewish immigrant districts. Um, by 1920, this electoral heyday went away, partly because of repression after World War One, the Reds for the 19, you know, the Red Scare after World War One. But also partly because of splits with the communists and a lot of infighting, uh, partly because of beginnings of upward mobility and outward mobility among the Jews. So these immigrant, dense immigrant districts, yep. working class districts, were kind of starting to break up a little bit. So for a variety of reasons, um, but the socialists didn't go away, and although they never really elected anyone again, they still were important within the Jewish community. The, the largest Yiddish newspaper was The Forward, which was a socialist newspaper. The Workmen's Circle still had tens of thousands of members. Um, the unions, in which a lot, there were a lot of Jewish members, were still led by socialists. So they were still a factor. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they were trying to find their way to kind of get back into more influence politically. In the 1930s, uh, many of them supported the New Deal, came to the conclusion that although it wasn't exactly socialism, uh, it was something like an American version of European social democracy. Mm. And it was, after all, starting to initiate um, what would have always been there, what they would have called their immediate program. Like, you know, before we have socialism, we need unemployment insurance, we need workers' compensation, we need... um, old age pensions, et cetera, et cetera. So that was, and, and also the New Deal, um, first in the uh, NRA and then in the uh, Wagner Labor Relations Act, uh, made it much easier to organize unions. 
And so they said, you know, Roosevelt is not a socialist, you know, the Democratic Party is not socialist, but um, it's on the side of the working class. It's, it, it's enacting uh, measures that increase the power of the working class, increase the power of the unions, especially in the garment, um, in the garment sector, yeah. where the industry was very disorganized. Uh, a lot of tiny little shops. The unions were the biggest organizing principle. And this was making it much easier for the unions to kind of establish order in the industry on the workers' terms, right? Um, so they said, well, well, really, we need to support the New Deal. We need to support Roosevelt. There's a problem with that, though. The problem is the Democratic Party is the party of white supremacy in the South and of the big city machines, like corrupt machines like the Tammany Hall in New York City. They don't really want to join the, New York, the, the Democratic Party. Also, the biggest new dealer in New York City was Fiorello LaGuardia, the mayor, and he was not a Democrat. He was actually elected as a Republican. And there were a lot of progressive Republicans in those days and liberal Republicans. So um, how do we support Roosevelt on the national level and Governor Lehman, who was a Democrat in the, on the state level, but LaGuardia was a Republican on the city level? And how do we support all of this without um, joining either of these parties, the Republican Party, which is the party of big business, or the Democratic Party, which is the party of white supremacy. And the answer was that in New York State, um, to this day, actually, there was an article about this in the Times um, today, I think, or yesterday. Um, in New York State, um, parties can cross endorse each other's candidates Put, another, put it another way, candidates can be the candidate of more than one party at a time. So you can go into the right. poll, if you vote in New York State, you can see that Hillary Clinton is the candidate of the Democratic Party, but also of the Working Families Party. And you can vote for her on either one, mm -hmm. and it counts the same. Right. right. So they discovered this. So they noticed this. It had been used a little bit before, but not really in any sustained way. They said, we can form our own party and we can back the candidates we want with their agreement and uh, we can have our cake and eat it too. We can, we can have our own independent labor party, uh, but we can support the Democrat Roosevelt president, et cetera, et cetera. And if we want, we can run our own candidates. And so they formed something called the American Labor Party. It's only existed in New York. Uh, and it, and it, it kind of uh, became very important. It, it, uh, LaGuardia actually joined it. Very few people know this. But after 1936 or 7, he was not a Republican, an enrolled Republican. He was an enrolled laborite. Oh, wow. And um, well, they didn't play that direct role in the party. Uh, and um, this was a way for all these old Jewish socialists to reinsert themselves into New York politics. And they had a social democratic kind of program. And they pushed it on the big parties. And the, the idea was, you know, you nominate who we want you to, or you endorse this kind of bill or this kind of program, or we will run our own candidates or we'll endorse your opponents. And um, this was especially important for Republicans in New York City because they could not win an election without outflanking the Democrats from the left. Um, but it was also important for the Democrats on the state level because if the American Labor Party 
ran a candidate against the Democrats, um, the Republicans would win. Hmm. Uh, now, what happened with the American Labor Party is that with the Popular Front, you're asking these questions, they're very complicated. Um, after the Soviet Union initiated the Popular Front uh, period in 1935-36, the Communist Party starts to cast around for ways to insert itself into the mainstream. And it all of a sudden, although it had called Roosevelt a social fascist uh, before this, they now all of a sudden were pro-New Deal also and pro-Roosevelt. Hmm. So they found in New York, they found the perfect vehicle also in the American Labor Party. Oh, and they, interesting. Although the, these Jewish socialists who had founded the party were very anti-communist, actually very anti-Soviet, uh, they now found themselves in the same party as the, as the communists. This wasn't such a problem until the um, Hitler-Stalin Pact in late August 1939, right before the beginning of World War II, like, like a week before the beginning of World War II, uh, when all of a sudden... Um, there was this treaty between the Soviet Union and Germany, and they divided they divided up Poland between themselves, and the American communists supported uh, the part, repartition of Poland, um, and all of a sudden were once again calling Roosevelt a warmonger because he was trying to arm the Western allies, I see. and um, so there was a uh, there were um, this became a problem. <laughs> within the American Labor Party, and they fought it out for the next four years until actually the pro-Soviet, well then of course the Soviet, um, the Germans attacked the Soviet Union in June 1941, and so again the communists were now pro-war, uh, but it was too late, so they fought it out uh, until the pro-communist faction uh, won out in the American Labor Party in 1944, 43-44, uh, and the anti-communist faction split and formed the Liberal Party, which some of the older listeners of this podcast in New York will remember, because uh, the Liberal Party played a role in New York politics through the 1990s, hmm. really till 2002. And it, it continued this kind of social democratic politics until it kind of degenerated into a um, just a corrupt patronage machine which had nothing to do with any kind of anything, politics, really. Um, but so, it, it, but it, this means that at least through the 1960s into, into the 1970s, probably until the fiscal crisis, this kind of politics played a role in mainstream New York politics, not through a socialist party, but through these little parties that manipulated the big parties, and a little bit through the Democratic Party itself. That's really interesting. Wow, I did not know all of New York's electoral history. Yeah, so I've just written a book, actually, about the Liberal Party. Oh, right. Which uh, is being looked at by a publisher, so I'll let you know. When yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Thank you so much for yeah. your time. That was Daniel Sawyer, Fordham Jewish history professor in New York City. And I hope that interview provided some more context for what Irina mentioned in the previous interview. For me, it was really helpful to learn the distinction between Buddhism and Zionism. Um, which sheds lights on the trend that Arena was mentioning um, towards the end of her interview about how a lot of modern lefty Jews are kind of reconnecting to this Buddhist heritage in order to find sort of a very self-affirming Jewish identity that isn't tied to the same Zionist politics. Um, and I think some of the ways in which um, Professor T Sawyer talked about the ways in which Jewish um, Bundists or socialists were marginalized within the Russian Revolutionary Party 
is an interesting parallel to kind of conversations we have today in ways in which perhaps people of color or women are marginalized within um, more white male socialist spaces. So we didn't have time to include um, this bit that I'm going to describe soon because, like I said, I have a lack of time of editing. But I thought it was important to mention that Professor Sawyer felt it was important to make clear that he disagrees with DSA's support of BDS, which is the boycott divestment sanctions against Israel, which is a plank that was voted into, I believe, our platform in the last national convention. So, I mean, you could probably deduce that from the way he ta- in which he talked about Israel. And, um, well, I, you know, as a religion, social, and podcast, obviously, we're our DSA production. But I think I do want to acknowledge ways in which individuals within DSA doesn't, don't always um, subscribe to everything that DSA as an organization upholds. I also do want to point out that if you listen to her in this interview, she has a very, very different take from um, Daniel. So it would be worth listening to them. If you enjoyed that conversation, check out other episodes uh, on our podcast, but also on a religion and socialism blog at religiouscialism.org. If you want to start a religion and socialism working group in your city, contact us there. Uh, special thank you to our supporters on Patreon. They um, really appreciate it. Once again, you're listening to Religion and Socialism, a production of the Democratic Socials of America. This podcast was produced by Devin Brisky. I'm Sarah New. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon. Thank you so much for your support and for sharing and providing iTunes ratings and all that stuff. Really, really